This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 463 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome back on the show, Sebastian Junger. Now, for many of you, you recognize Sebastian for his film Restrepo, from his multiple books, including Tribe, which resonated deeply with our audience. And he has just come out with a brand new book in the same kind of category as Tribe called Freedom. So we discuss a host of topics from the book itself and the journey he took that it's based around, the concept of freedom, but also some of the more personal stories of the last few years himself, becoming a father, having a very, very close encounter with death, and so much more. Before we get to that conversation, as I say every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on. Subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Each five-star rating helps to elevate this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a library, a free library, of over 460 incredible minds. And all I ask in return is that you help share their incredible stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So that being said, I welcome back Sebastian Junger. Enjoy. So Sebastian, I want to start by saying welcome back. You were 
an amazing, amazing human said yes when I first started this podcast when I had zero episodes, and that was episode seven. Um, you know that when we finally put it out, and then you came back on episode sixty-five. But the last few years have, have been pretty, you know, incredible from ups and downs. So um, I want to start just by saying welcome back to the podcast and thank you for coming back on. Oh well, it's a, always a pleasure to talk to you, and thank you for having me back. So. What I would love to do is about you know three and a half or so years ago, the last time we recorded, um, you had, had gone through a divorce, um, and you know something that I went through myself a few years ago, and you know you'd obviously had the episodes of the, the PTSD and worked through that after losing Tim and after being deployed as a you know um, embedded reporter as it were or journalist, um, but you have had some pretty incredible highs and lows the last few years so what i would love to start with is how you know how you found love again because i think a lot of people out there that are, have come from a relationship that has ended however it ended it's important to hear stories of hope and i'm extremely happily remarried myself now and then this transition into becoming a father because that sounded like from the interview with tim ferris i listened to was very very profound for you and i know it certainly was for me as well yeah, so, um, uh, I mean, what I can say about my first marriage, um, I was married to an unbelievably nice woman. Uh, we cared for each other enormously, and it, it was the marriage itself that didn't work very well. And I think that's probably quite common, particularly in younger people. They meet someone they really do love, but there are still changes going on in each person. They're, you know, they're, they're forming themselves in real time within the marriage. And sometimes, you know, the, the, the two people form themselves and, you know, they sort of head off in different directions. And uh, there's no, um, there's no dishonor there, you know, and we, we divorced incredibly amicably. We're still very good friends. Uh, and I'm, you know, I'm just so appreciative for her that we could do that. And I think she feels the same way. So that just, just to say that our marriages can end peacefully and even lovingly. Um, and, you know, I'm 59. And some years ago, I, you know, I met someone who's, you know, it was just a good fit. And um, I, I must, you know, I'm a, a bit of an oddball. And I, you know, it does, doesn't necessarily work with everybody, you know, and, and but I met, you know, the, the key fit the lock or whatever metaphor you want. And we and we're just like incredibly happy together. And we I think we met also at the right time in our lives. We've talked about like, what if we met when we were 25 and we both sort of rolled our eyes and how badly that would have gone. So, you know, I, I think time, you know, timing is a lot. And, um, and we have, um, we have two wonderful little girls, age four and age one and a half. And, um, you know, again, if I, you know, become a dad at age 25, when I still had a a lot of things I wanted to do, like for myself, by myself, like traveling around the world and reporting on wars and, you know, just the sort of maniacal focus that writing a book requires. You know, I, you know, I think I could have found myself in a where I where I was in the sort of con there was a kind of competition between my 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 role as a father and my ambitions, my desires as, a, as an individual. Um, I don't think that necessarily would have worked very well. And um but I, you know, I'm in. I became a dad in my fifties, and I've done a lot of the things I really wanted to do. And uh, the the biggest, most important thing I've ever done in my life is being a dad. And but that's partly because I embarked on it at the age that I did. And now I, you know, like nothing even, not 
I, nothing even come close comes close to interesting me as much as my children do. I mean, nothing I could write, nothing I could, nothing like that's it. And it's such an amazing feeling. Now, when the past obviously did some very dangerous professions, whether it was the the tree work, the um, you know the journalism, um, and you know you were in an area where you know death was obviously a reality. But as I've heard you mention before, at that point, really the only person that was immediately affected was yourself. Well, any parents out there listening know that you know now there's a completely different kind of uh, dynamic when a tiny human being is relying on you for you know food for protection for for clothing for all the things that you know we as a species need to survive so when you became a father how did that kind of that perception of danger change within yourself oh that you know that perception of danger had already changed after tim got killed um i i realized the light bulb went off because i watched that tragedy ripple out through everyone that loved him most, his family and his friends, his girlfriends. And I realized that you, you could among, I mean, war reporting done right can be seen as something kind of noble. Like you're communicating urgent events to, to the world as they happen. And, and there is something important and, and noble, potentially noble in that. And you're doing it at risk to your life. And, but suddenly I realized it's also quite selfish because if you get killed and there's, you know, it's all too, that's all too easy to have happen. Um, I mean, I, I mean, God, I, I can just, in my mind, I'm just recounting that the times in my life that I've almost, almost gotten killed out there. I mean, so close a whole bunch of times. Right. And if you get killed, you're, you know, in a weird way, you're not, you're the, you're really not paying the consequences because you're dead. You don't exist anymore. It's your parents, your loved ones, your friends who are paying the consequences of your death and will have to the rest of their lives. And to and suddenly war reporting didn't look noble. It looked sort of self selfish and um, and and and, and ego driven. Uh, and it's not entirely those things, but it's partly those things. And I was when Tim died, I was. I was coming up on age 50 and I just thought, you know, it's time to start putting other people, other people first. And that means you're not a war reporter anymore because you're gambling with their lives, not your own life. Really. You're gambling with their lives, your parents, your, your family, your friends. And um, so I stopped, I stopped cold. And uh, by the time I had children, I mean, now, I mean, geez, I mean, I won't even cross the street if it's not a walk light. I mean, I'm so neurotically safe. It's insane. <laughs> Well, it's an interesting parallel and something that's come out of a lot of the uh, conversations I've had is when people talk about suicide as being cowardly. And, you know, from the outside looking in, yes, just like you detailed, when we become husbands, wives, you know, parents, um, there are people that absolutely rely on us. And that's what's so heartbreaking because I've had so many testimonies now from people that have either... Pull, you know, pulled the trigger or jumped off the bridge and survived or people that were, were stopped right before. And it's always the same thing through, you know, the, the ripple effects of childhood trauma and, and TBIs and sleep deprivation and the trauma they see and all these things. The brain has been distorted to where they truly believe that the world will be better off without them. And just what you've detailed, obviously, the actual 
the, the truth, the reality is the polar opposite of that. But that's how terrifying mental ill health is. You can basically be led to believe that your children, your wife, your husband will actually thrive after you remove yourself from the planet. So it's, it's a very terrifying insight into the mind of someone who's, who's about to take their own life. Well, yeah, and I, you know, I want to respect people's privacy here, but my very best friend um, put a gun in his mouth um, because I think he believed that, and, and he died with his children, you know, drawings that his children had done sitting next to him. Um, and I think he was trying to protect them from what he thought was a threat that he represented to them. Um, and um, my aunt at age 16, I never knew her. This is a long time ago, um, threw herself out of a four story window and died slowly um, in a hospital, regretting that she'd done that. But she did it because she thought things, people would be better off without her. It's indescribably tragic. And I remember after Tim got killed, you know, he was hit by shrapnel on an assignment that we were supposed to be on together. And the last minute I couldn't go. Um, and, um, and he, he bled out in the back of a rebel pickup truck. And I was in a, in a marriage that was struggling. Um, I, I was struggling with a certain amount of uh, combat reaction, I don't even, trauma, maybe trauma is the right word, whatever. It was messing me up. Uh, and I didn't have children, and that was its own heartbreak. And I just remember thinking, I remember realizing I was in danger when the thought kept crossing my mind, maybe Tim was the lucky one. You know, maybe he got out before life came crashing down and revealed itself to be so tragic and disappointing that it's almost unbearable to live. You know, he got out, he went out a hero at the height of his ascendancy and he was spared all of this miserable stuff. And um, that's when I realized that I, like, that I was in a, a, actually in a kind of risk category. It was kind of shocking to me. Uh, and, then, um, and then everything in my life crumbled. And, and thank God, because what I managed to rebuild is um, an incredibly good, worthy life. And I'm very proud of it and incredibly happy. Now, I can't remember from the previous conversation, so I'd love to just you know, pull this out again. You hit that low point yourself, as so many people listening have, and myself included, and mine was obviously amidst my divorce as well. What were the, the elements that worked for you, whether they were you know, nature, sports, a certain type of psychotherapy? Were, were there any things we look back now that for you, Sebastian Younger, worked well? <laughs> well, I mean, I don't know if this was a form of therapy or not, but I, I did a fair amount of I mean, I, I'm embarrassed to say this, but the truth is uh, I no longer, I haven't drunk, had a drink in six years and I'm very, very happy this way, but I did a fair amount of drinking through that period, honestly, like, and I'm not recommending this, but I think for me, it actually, I was in a lot of pain and on it. And I'm, I'm, I, you know, I'm sort of a happy drunk and it honestly, it eased me through some tough spots and I'm not recommending it, but that if I look back, I'm like, damn, like that would, and I'm sure that's a, um, diagnostic tool for a therapist, right? Like, are you drinking more right now? I mean, I'm sure it's like having a fever, right? Oh, like something's going on. You're trying to survive your body. Your mind is trying to survive something. You're self-medicating. So I'm sure that that's what a shrink would say. In my experience, I was like, okay, I'm going through a tough period. And, and um, this helps a little bit. Uh, I righted my, you know, I righted my ship pretty soon after that. 
And, um, you know, honestly, what helped me through was that I was had the miraculous good luck of, of winding up in a good relationship with, you know, a loving person. Not that my ex-wife wasn't loving, but it was it just whatever. The, rela- the marriage wasn't working. And suddenly I was in a relationship that did work. And if you're in a relationship that does work, you suddenly see um, with amazing insight that you understand the times that other relationships didn't work, even for, with two good people trying as hard as they can. And suddenly you understand, oh, of course, of course that didn't work, you know, and no, not a, no, not a bad reflection on anybody. And I just, I, I had just this feeling of being like, suddenly my life felt right. And suddenly I wasn't depressed anymore. And um, I became quite healthy, you know, like uh, every once in a while I smoke a cigarette, but otherwise I'm like the healthiest person there is. And thank God, I mean, we'll, I know we'll talk about this later, but that saved my life uh, last year during a medical incident. So uh, it's interesting how it all plays out. Yeah, well, I want to get to that next, but just very quickly. So you you owned a pub, actually visited in New York. Um, and, you know, like you said, you're a happy drunk. And I think... Um, yeah, that's kind of. Yeah, I like to stop at the the buzz myself, but I definitely still to this day rely on alcohol um, as a kind of decompressor. But tying into your previous book with Tribe, when you were working through that, and alcohol maybe was a way of you know um, softening the blow, bringing the walls down. Was there also a tribal element? Were you drinking in groups and and, and storytelling through your drinking as well? Yeah, and let me just add, I was also talking to a therapist pretty intensively, and that helped a lot. Um, but, um, and I'm, you know, I'm an athlete and, and, you know, running yourself into a pulp in the hills also helps a lot. <laughs> like you know, all these things are like, are very, very therapeutic, but, um, yeah, I think there was a certain amount of story. I, you know, I never drank on my own, obviously, like it was always a social thing. And, and, you know, I think there was, I think there's a kind of elemental connection that can happen between two people when they're drinking that isn't, you know, it's different from, a fully sober connection and each, you know, frankly, each has its merits. I mean, I got to say it, you know, and I'm, you know, I'm all for, I am all for not drinking. You know, I feel, you know, like, I feel like, um, how can I say this? Uh, I feel like a lot, there's a lot about modern society that it's a bit of a con and that con works because we're all very distracted. And, um, we're distracted by social media. We're distracted by television. We're distracted by um, alcohol, by drugs. You know, and we're and and, and be, with all of that, it allows human beings. We're social primates. We're adapted to live in a certain kind of environment, and now we're living in a very different kind of environment. Um, most people working insanely hard at very repetitive jobs, and many of us actually will not really economically move forward or expand our, our sort of personal freedom much, our auton- autonomy. And those are very, very painful realities for the human animal to, to survive in. And I think one way that we manage to do it is through this sort of mass campaign of distraction that society has proposed to us. And for me, I'm like, okay, I at least want to be clear-minded um, while I'm part of this, I, I, I at least want to have my wits about me and alcohol. Uh, you know, when you're young, it's an act of rebellion to get drunk. When you're old, it's an act, an act of, um, acquiescence in my opinion. And I don't want to, I, 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 I don't want to, um, I don't want to acquiesce. I want to be fully alert and alive. 
for whatever's happening. And so that's my, you know, once you're in your fifties, that's my pitch for, for being sober. Yeah, no, that's beautiful as well. But I think it's an interesting perspective how, you know, that you're, you know, a sensible use of alcohol in a social setting, you know, is, is not, you know, demon spawn as it were but i mean i know we've had so many conversations on here where it's got completely out of control so understanding that but yeah i mean i know for me when i have periods and i do have periods where i won't drink for several weeks you know i do feel better and then you kind of kind of kick yourself like you go back and start having social drinks again but yeah that clarity i mean i think a lot of us suffer from as we mentioned before tbis and, and sleep deprivation all these things that a certain level of brain fog i know i do and that's the one thing that i think really starts to go away when I stop drinking. Right. And let me just say, you know, if, if you're drinking because, I don't mean you specifically, if one is drinking because you're in pain, drinking makes you feel better. And you'll never solve the source of your pain if you're drinking, because drinking works. You know what I mean? Like, in, in some ways, you have to experience your life as it really is, unfiltered through the... Um, the gentle effects of alcohol or drugs, you have to experience the reality of your life before you might be motivated to make a painful change. And for me, that was getting, you know, like getting out of a marriage with someone that I actually really loved, you know, but it wasn't working. That was an incredibly painful reality to face. And um, I think if I had, um, I think a, a, a certain kind of calculated drinking might allow a person to stay in a marriage that's actually not the right marriage for them, you know, to the detriment of both people. That's the danger of drinking. It actually allows you to accept things that a sober-minded person wouldn't put up with, you know, for any any length of time. Yeah, no, I agree. That's a very powerful perspective. So you mentioned before about the near-death experience, and I think it's, it's profound, obviously, for your own personal journey, but also for so many of us listening, not only the manifestation or you know, the presentation of what happened, but also... Um, it's very easy for us to to downplay someone's symptoms. And I think this was, you know, this was a huge near miss, as we call it in our profession, that we need to learn from. So can I tell me about the, the the weeks leading up to it and your overall health and how you felt and then and then that incident and then the weeks after? Well, yeah, I mean, I had sort of reoccurring pain in my abdomen for about six months that I sort of like promptly ignored. I was like, it's not that bad. I mean, kidney stones are a lot worse. And if it's bearable, it's probably not going to kill you. Uh, so I just ignored it. And um, I still don't know what the origin of that pain was. But at any rate, I had a, 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 a syndrome called median arcuate ligament syndrome, MALS. Uh, the median arcuate ligament is, is in the sort of wrong place, and it pushes down on the celiac artery that feeds all of the organs with blood. Uh, it collapses the celiac artery. And this is a completely mechanistic process, right? I don't have, like... Uh, cholesterol or plaque or whatever. I mean, I've, I'm in great health. There's a mechanical problem that's congenital. So the blood flows around to these smaller ancillary arteries, uh, an arcade, they call it, of arteries that go to the pancreas and the duodenum. Um, and uh, under the greater, under the increased pressures in these smaller arteries, one aneurysm, well, one artery, one small artery developed an aneurysm, undiagnosed, asymptomatic. And without any warning, uh, or seemingly without any warning, um, I was relaxing with my wife uh, and um, doing nothing strenuous. We were just hanging out. And suddenly, 
I, my abdomen was flooded with pain and I couldn't get into a comfortable position. And, um, and I just, I thought, okay, I'm going to try and move around, around. And I, and I stood up and I, I couldn't, I, I couldn't keep my feet. Um, I was losing consciousness and uh, my wife, we were in a cabin that I built in the woods about a hundred yards from where the driveway is. We have a house that's pretty deep in the woods in Massachusetts. And she sort of half dragged me down this path and managed to get me to the driveway where the car was and put me in the passenger seat of the car and called 911. And um, by then I was going blind. Um, the, 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 the sky turned a kind of like electric white and that white was taking over everything. And um, what had happened, and I didn't know, but I, the, the aneurysm had ruptured and I was bleeding out into my abdominal cavity. Um, the, the paramedics got there, they, you know, older guy, you know, older, whatever, I'm 50, I was 58 at the time. Older guy, hot day, probably dehydrated, you know, drink some water, sit in the shade, you're probably, you know, you're probably gonna be okay. My wife is like, you're taking him to the hospital, something's really wrong. And I was willing to go along with the paramedics, like I don't wanna be a pain to anybody, right? Uh, it's a 45 minute trip to the hospital, who needs that, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, somewhere on the drive, they put me in the wagon and somewhere on the drive, someone figured out something was really going on because I could sense the change in the driving. Like all of a sudden they were hitting the sirens a lot more. They were driving really aggressively. They were sort of pushing through the traffic. Like there was a, suddenly an urgency in the driving. And, and, um, uh, and I, I, I had this sort of split understanding. I, I, I didn't think anything was serious, but I also, I knew something was really wrong and it, it's hard to explain how those two things could coexist, but um, maybe I was a kind of denial. My body was shutting down. Um, it took an hour and a half after the initial feeling onset of this to get me to the ER, an hour and a half. Uh, my hemoglobin was 1.2, right? Like I, I couldn't even find that online as a low, I mean, like it, it's almost, um, incredibly rare to not die at that level um my blood pressure was 60 over 40 i'd lost bowel control um essentially i'd lost 90 percent of my blood basically and um i got to the er and the, the doctor asked permission i was still conversant weirdly i was conscious i was in and out of consciousness and still conversant and the doctor asked permission to cut my neck open to put a line into my neck to do they, they ended up putting 10 units of blood into me and, um, and I said, yeah, in case there's an emergency. And he was like, no, this is the emergency right now, sir. Like we have to, I still didn't get it, you know? And, and, uh, and he started working on my neck and then I started, I really started to go. I, I felt this dark pit open up underneath me and I felt myself getting pulled into this blackness. And I knew, I, didn't, I had no idea I was dying, but I was in this twilight area between life and death. And, um, you know, a very strange place that most people don't come back from. Um, but I started getting pulled into this dark pit and I just was like, I don't want, I, like I knew you don't want to go down there. Like, I mean, I didn't think I was dying. I was like, you do not want to go down there. But I can remember just, I was almost like a wounded animal. I would just like, do not, like when you try to take your dog to the vet and they don't want to get out of the car, I was like that with the pit, right? Like, do not go down there. And, and, I, and I was sort of panicking about it. And right then, my father, who's been dead, who you know, for many years now, 
I love very much. Um, suddenly he appeared. And I should stop here for a moment and say, I'm an atheist. I don't believe in anything. My father was a physicist, a complete rationalist. I've emulated him as much as I possibly can, being not as smart as him, but I do my best. Um, I don't believe in anything. I'm not a mystic. In fact, I'm an anti-mystic. Like, I, I mean, I could go on about that. I won't. But all of a sudden, my father was floating. It was, it was a presence next to me. And he was uh, trying to communicate with me, and he was seemed to be trying to comfort me. And um, I kind of waved him away. I sort of didn't want to have anything to do with him at that moment. And um, And the last thing I remember saying to the doctor was, you got to hurry up, you're losing me right now, meaning I was going into the pit. And then spotty memories, they took me to the cath lab. Um, it took them about eight hours. Um, you know, my kidneys were in screaming pain because my kidneys were starting to fail. Um, they, they, they put me in a fluoroscope. I had so much radiation looking for the bleed that, I mean, my life depended on them finding where it was bleeding and plugging it. And, uh, and they just couldn't find it. And I remember seeing the expression on their faces, uh, um, the interventional radiologist and the vascular surgeon. I remember them looking at each other and kind of shrugging, like, what do we do now? We can't find it. And I remember just just clocking that thinking, oh no, what's going on here? Like, you guys got this right? Like what's, what's happening? I had no idea. I was, it was horrible. And, um, I didn't have the information that I was dying, but I could tell by people's expressions that I was. And um, it was a horrible feeling and I was in incredible pain. And um, I was having these odd visions, geometric visions were starting to appear, weird faces in the machinery around me. I mean, I was in a very, very altered state. And um, God bless those guys, like they finally, finally found it. They found the bleed and they plugged it with a catheter embolism. And um, I had so much radiation looking for it that they, I got uh, radiation burns on my back. A couple of weeks later, I got the, these horrible squ- this horrible square burn mark on my back because I'd been in the fluoroscope for so long. Uh, and um, the next morning I woke up in the ICU and no idea what had happened to me. And the nurse said, um, Mr. Younger, I don't know if you realize this, but uh, you almost died yesterday. In fact, no one can figure out why you're alive. Like you, it, it is, it's almost impossible what happened that you're still alive. Your, your, your vitals were inconsistent with life and no one survives this. And just, you need to know that. And um, that was deeply traumatizing and shocking to me. And, you know, Physically, I was a mess. I was throwing up blood and I was, I mean, I was a mess, but that was really painful because I have two little girls. And I just thought, are you kidding? They almost lost their dad. I mean, it wasn't about me, right? It was about them. And I was, it was tormenting to think how close it had been. And the woman came back and said, how are you doing? You know, after an hour, she's like, how are you doing, Mr. Younger? And you got to love ICU nurses, right? I mean, they're the most no bullshit, the straight shooting, like amazing, amazing people. And um, she said, how are you doing, Mr. Younger? And I said, well, physically, I'm okay, which was a lie, but uh, I felt horrible. But I said, I'm okay. But, you know, honestly, what you told me is really tormenting me. It's hard to think about it. I said, I can't believe that I I almost died in my own driveway in front of my family. I I, I, I can't believe that. I can't. I don't know what to do with it. And she said, "Um, you know what? Try 
Try not thinking about it as something scary. Try thinking about it as something sacred. That's all she said. She didn't need to say more. And I kept, I, and I spent days in the ICU thinking about that. And she was right. Like I was led to the threshold of life and death. And I was given a kind of, um, this, I was given the sacred knowledge, right? I mean, I was given, I was led to the precipice and allowed to come back. And very few people are. And I came back with, among other things, the understanding that sort of deep understanding that life is not only precious, but, um, Absolutely not guaranteed, not guaranteed moment by moment. Forget month by month or year by year. It's not guaranteed moment by moment. So don't waste it. Don't waste your time. Love the people you love and, and, and live, you know, in a righteous, dignified way. And, you know, whatever, however that means to you. But um, don't think it's going to happen later because later almost never happened for me. And now I have the odd illusion sometimes that I, maybe I did die. And what I'm looking at with my family is them going on without me and I can see them, but they can't see me. And I know that's not true, but um, it, it, it reflects a kind of reality because all of that, any, that could happen to any one of us at any moment. And so you have to understand the alternate reality that is described by life in your absence. And it's a powerful thing to acknowledge. Well, firstly, I'm sure the blood pressure was what made them change the speed because, uh, yeah, I mean, abdominal pain can be, you know, benign. A lot of people with a, a, a shearing, tearing, extreme abdominal pain usually is a kind of red flag for us when we're listening. But again, you know, Monday morning quarterbacking. But I think it's important for everyone to listen to that story because, I mean, the the aneurysms are the ones that that are awful and I had a I had a 28 year old drop dead with a, a brain aneurysm you know and there was nothing we could do nothing we could do and everything we did went perfectly but he still died when when I hear you talk about you know the danger the the, the risks that you took when you were younger and in, in your careers um, it kind of reminds me of I don't think it was one of your books please correct me if I'm wrong I think it was Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman but they were talking about studying fear and they had done uh, an experiment on the military and they were out in some kind of, you know, fob somewhere. And uh, the regular soldiers were kind of waiting for an attack and their stress levels were through the roof. Then they tested some special operations soldiers who were going in there ready, you know, for a particular mission, still in the same exact danger from, from everyone around them, but their stress levels were very low. And what it kind of resonated with me with what you went through is when you were, you know, in Restrepo, when you were, you know, deployed, there was an acceptance already of, um, you know, there's there's the risk we're expecting to be attacked, and so you saw that camaraderie, that tribal element, that that probably reduced stress. But it's the the impression I got from your conversation with Tim is the fact that you were just at home, and this happened. And, and the, the, the mortality element hit you in a different way than being embedded in a place where you'd already kind of signed, signed a mental um, agreement that there was going to be danger. Oh, absolutely. And that was actually I, was from my book, although I took it from a published study from you know, decades ago, but it was a... Um, it was a special forces outpost in Vietnam. Okay, thank you for correcting me. I, I thought it was, but I wanted to make sure. Yeah, no, no worries, no worries. Uh, and it's rather extraordinary. There was, you know, 
20 or so special ops guys, and they had intel that they were going to be attacked by a regiment of NVA, and they had no way of being re- reinforced. And, um, and there happened to be a psychologist out there monitoring cortisol levels in soldiers, of all things. And he started doing spit tests or urine tests. I don't know what, but he did everybody after this news came that, you know, get ready, it's coming, right? And at the end of the day, the attack actually didn't come, but um, they thought it was, and they started getting ready. The off, the lieutenant, his uh, cortisol re- levels were through the roof, right? Um, the special ops guys, they were busy filling sandbags and, and, and cleaning the guns and polishing the ammo and getting everything ready, get, getting everything set for like, the big, you know, the big hit. And because they had agency, because they were trained, they knew what to do, they felt that they could affect the outcome, their cortisol levels dropped because they were doing things that they thought would help their chances, even their chances in an overwhelmingly bad situation. And the lieutenant actually didn't have much to do, and so his cortisol levels went up. And um, so you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, in a war zone, there's a, there's a lot of sort of random stuff going on. I mean, look, I had a bullet hit, you know, out of the blue, there was an attack on OP Restrepo. And I mean, no warning at all, just all of a sudden, da, 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 right? And it was an hour long firefight or something. And, but the first burst of rounds, you know, one of the first rounds hit so into a sandbag so close to my head that it kicked sand into my side of my face. I mean, that's a couple of inches, right? And, um, I, and, you know, it was shot from 400 meters away. So, you know, just think about the angle that saved my life. I mean, good Lord. And, and, uh, but I, you know, that, never, you know, that stuff was, I mean, it shook me up a little bit, but I, I mean, I, I didn't live with, I mean, I'm still struggling mentally with what happened to me a year ago. You know, I, I mean, it was way, way worse than anything that happened in combat for me. And it was because I, it was a place that I thought was safe. And my children were there, you know, that my daughters almost saw this and my wife almost saw this. And, you know, the, the, um, I talked to a guy, a palliative care doctor who attends to people who are dying and amazing man. And, um, and he said that, um, people who are dying towards the end, they're not scared particularly. Most of them, they're not scared, but they have what he calls anticipatory grief. They're worried about their loved ones in their absence. And it's like with soldiers, it seems to be that if you can worry about others more than yourself, you don't have to experience the fear of your own personal fear of extinction. And uh, um, that's what I think that's what happened for me is I I was so worried about what life would be like for my family in my absence. Uh, It was so tormenting to me that I actually haven't really given that much thought to, I mean, you know, honestly, dying, from my experience of almost doing it, it's not that big a deal. Like my experience was, it's like a half step to the left. I didn't want to do it, you know, but it seemed like a very mundane, simple process. Like, oh, you're halfway there. You just take another half step to the left and it's over with. It's done. Don't worry about it. You know, that's how it felt. Um, The implications for people that I love, well, that I love more than life itself, obviously. The implications for them are the things that's what I can't get over. Like that's what I'm having psychologically still struggling with. Yeah, it's interesting. I spoke to, um, I had a a palliative care physician, Dr. BJ Miller on a couple of times now. And again, his, his report on all these, these patients who passed away under his care. um, The only difference really between 
passing away peacefully and you know the ones that really kind of were were struggling with that was regret was you know had they ultimately had they been a good person had they loved had they you know followed some of the things that they'd always wanted to do had they, you know had they created good relationships and if they had uh, you know you, you would think that everyone was terrified when they were dying but he said basically most of the people that if they'd if they'd lived a, the the kind of life that they wanted to they were pretty much yeah. at peace when it came to passing away yeah yeah and for me you know had i been had this happened to me when i was 80 I would have been totally fine with it. Um, and if I would not had children, I think I might have been kind of okay with it. it you, know, you put some very vulnerable young children into the equation and it changes everything. You know, likewise, if, you know, if I heard someone thumping around at, the, at three in the morning in my house, very, very different being up in the bedroom with your family or, or up there by yourself. It's a whole different ballgame. And, you know, honestly, what wouldn't I do to protect them in that circumstance? But what do you do to protect them from your own death? Like that there's there there yeah. What are you gonna fight God? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> no, it's not, you know, then that's what's so disorienting about it. Yeah. And it's it's such a you know, um a juxtaposition in our professions because we wanna be out there making a difference in our community, protecting our community, you know, rescuing people from, you know, gunfire, house fire, whatever it is. But there is that balance of risk-taking versus being able to go home the next day. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, sometimes you see, you know, in New York, there's a tragedy with the fire department and, and you, you know, you see that inevitably there's the photograph in the New York Times of the, you know, the wife holding the two-year-olds and the five-year-old, you know, like standing by his mom, like at the casket. I mean, it just, it, I mean, now that I'm a parent, particularly, I, I can't even look at those photos. They're too painful. It's just so, I mean, really, it's an incredibly painful thing. It is. Yeah, that's why I started this, because when when it happened and there's no way of avoiding it, that's tragic. It's when it was preventable that really breaks my heart, whether it was an acute event like, you know, an operational error that resulted in a firefighter's death or whether it was a, a chronic, you know, with the, the shifts they work, the, the smoke they breathe in, you know, all these things that getting hit by cars on, on freeways while they're working a scene. I mean, these are preventable deaths. And I think that makes it even worse. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, going on to the journey then that became the book, um, I think it's a very powerful story. You mentioned losing Tim, who's a fellow Brit. Um, so tell me about the the journey that you and Tim had discussed and then kind of lead us through to when you actually walked that walk. Yeah, so, you know, when, when we were making Restrepo, which is a documentary about O.P. Restrepo, which was a godforsaken little piece of Amer a postage stamp version of America in the Eastern Afghanistan, uh, this tiny little outpost with a lot of combat. And, you know, Tim and I made that together. We shot all the video and we were uh, brothers out there as combat in the way that combat creates brotherhood. Um, and we were, you know, we were, we were making this film. It was completely self-funded. I mean, whatever. We were in deep. In, in every sense, we were in deep. And we were going down to D.C. to talk to National Geographic about to see if they would buy our film. And on the way, we were on the Amtrak down the East Coast from New York. And, you know, I spent the whole time staring out the window. And, and I, at one point I said, Tim, man, you know, you, we, could, uh, we could walk this whole train line. We did a lot of walking out in, in Afghanistan, in eastern Afghanistan with the soldiers, right? I mean, we, you know, there's a lot of walking with a fair amount of weight. So we knew all about that. And I was like, you know, we could walk this whole thing 
like the whole length, there's like a dirt bike trail or a maintenance road or a cornfield or a ghetto or a, a junkyard or, a, you know, whatever. Like you can thread your way through this along the, the, the railroad lines, you know, it's a kind of no man's land. And I was like, there's bridges to sleep under, there's abandoned buildings to sleep in, there's what there's everything out here except police, apparently. And uh, let's do it. Let's walk from D.C. to New York. He was in and uh, and then he got killed in Libya. And um, so I I made about a film about Tim and his extraordinary life and his extraordinary work. And then after that, I revisited this idea and I was like, oh, man, I'm going to do it. And um, I found the guy, a wonderful Spanish photographer named Guillermo Cervera, who was, you know, in the back of the rebel pickup truck in Libya, holding Tim's hand as he died, as he bled out. And I got to know Guillermo very well, an amazing man. And, um, and I grabbed a couple of guys from OP Restrepo that, you know, Tim and I have been particularly close to. And I, and I somehow convinced, <laughs> convinced these guys to walk up the, up the East Coast with me along the railroad lines. And, and, and off we went. And um, we did it in, in stages over the course of a year. I got to walk in every season. Um, we walked 50 or hundred miles and then we'd stop and come back a couple months later and continue and, uh, right, right from where we'd stopped. And, uh, you know, we didn't have a tent or anything. We had a, I had a little gas stove and we'd cook, you know, you know, we had to find, you know, we drink waters out of creeks and we had to dodge the police cause it's totally illegal. And it, you know, there's a lot of marginal characters out there and there's no man land and, at one point, the cops had a helicopter looking for us, which I felt a little bad about using a national asset like that. But you know, whatever. Um, we and all, we, you know, we got to Philly and and turned west and uh, headed for Pittsburgh and uh, and made it almost. You know, we called the trip right on the outskirts of Pittsburgh, and uh, um, it was the most raw encounter with ourselves and with America, you know, it was totally unfiltered. Like, this is who you are and this is what this country is, all the good, the bad and the ugly. And, um, you know, really, you know, it was, I was in the middle of, uh, you know, getting divorced as was one of the other guys. Um, we never talked about it. I mean, it's sort of extraordinary thing about us or about men or I don't know what, but we walked 400 miles. Um, half of the little group was in the middle of getting divorced and it never came up. Like no one asked and no one, no one offered. And we just didn't talk about it because, you know, the walk was, you know, in some ways a, um, a respite from um, our, our physically easier, but emotionally more difficult private lives back in, you know, where we lived. And, uh, uh, and then by the end of the trip, you know, I think we all had to sort of return to some unfinished business in our lives. Beautiful. What, what I love about Freedom versus Tribe is obviously you have your own personal journey of this walk and, you know, obviously a very powerful walk based on the, the origins of it. Um, but, you know, there, there's a there's a strong um, visitation of the Native American tribes in your book, Tribe. And so there's, you know, some more correlations with that. But there's also an element of, you know, the pioneer, the settler as you're walking through this journey as well. So that's interwoven with obviously your um, observations, philosophies on the concept of freedom. So what made you choose that topic? Well, you know, many years later, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, I, I thought I wanted to write about freedom. And I thought, what's the freest 
I mean, I had all kinds of research I wanted to do, but I thought, okay, for you personally, what's the freest you've ever been? And, and I sort of came, cast my mind back to what I, what we called the last patrol, right. And uh, uh, along the railroad lines. And I thought, you know, we, in 400 miles, you know, we, 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 you know, we slept outside wherever we could. Right. And um, out of sight, hopefully under some kind of shelter, if it was going to rain. Um, and I thought 400 miles and most nights we were the only people who knew where we were. There's many definitions of freedom, but surely that's one of them. And so um, I thought I'll interweave an account of this trip. You know, I kept my notebooks as I always do because I'm a writer. I just write stuff down. So, so I'm going to interweave an account of this trip, this extraordinary trip, to this extraordinary country, you know, with the sort of research that I was doing. And I, and I basically broke down freedom into three sections. Um, you know, I studied anthropology in college. I see things through that lens. And I thought, what gives humans the ability to be autonomous and self-defining? Um, in most mammalian species, in chimpanzees, for example, there's a, basically a top-down male hierarchy. There really isn't much possibility to be self-defining in, in defiance of the of the hierarchy, um, but in humans that's not true. The, the smaller person or the smaller group actually can maintain their autonomy in the face of an overwhelming power, and and it's unique to humans. And how 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 does that work? And so basically, I divide it into the three sections. Often small. Smaller scale societies maintain their autonomy by, by being mobile. The Apache lasted 300 years longer than the, than the more established wealthier Pueblo tribes that were lived in Pueblos and towns. By being mobile, they just, nobody could catch them. They were materially poor, which means they were very fast, you know, literally fast on their feet. They could outrun, outwalk U.S. cavalry in rough terrain. It took 300 years, almost within my grandmother's lifetime, to sort of round up and corral the last of the, you know, the wild Apache. And um, so the first section of my book is called Run. If you can't outrun your oppressor, you're going to have to outfight him. The next section is called Fight. And it looks at this interesting phenomenon where a smaller human can, in one-on-one -on -one combat, actually defeat a larger human uh, in ways that just are never seen in the rest of the animal kingdom, uh, the, the mammalian kingdom. Um, and so I look at mixed martial arts and boxing and all these sort of physical dynamics that allow a, a smaller person to outfight a larger one. But it scales up, right? Uh, the, the, the Montenegrins in the early 1600s were in, you know, fierce mountain tribe, were invaded by the Ottoman Empire, which was the dominant military force of the world at the time, um, and were outnumbered in one, in one of these campaigns. Was out, the, the Montenegrins were outnumbered 12 to 1. Right, they were facing cavalry and artillery. Right, um, sort of analogous to what the Taliban were facing with the U.S. and Afghanistan, and um, the Montenegrins handed them their hat. I mean, they killed a third of the Montenegrin uh, um, of the Ottoman force. The Montenegrins killed a third of the of, of the Ottoman army, and sent sent the rest fleeing. Inconceivable for any other mammalian species, um, and the you know the ability of a small group like the Montenegrins or the Ottomans to defy a greater power is means that freedom is possible. I mean, I loathe the Taliban, right? They are not a free society, but the fact that they could pull off what they did fighting us um, means that smaller societies 
are not necessarily dominated by the great empire. And, you know, finally, if you can't outfight your oppressor, you're going to have to outthink them. And that's where I talk about the labor movement in the Easter Rising in Ireland in 1916 and the labor movement about around 100 years ago in America, um, where, you know, a, a, a very um, disadvantaged force was able to confront and, and eventually defeat politically and in some cases sort of militarily defeat um, uh, the, uh, the, the government and the military. It's extraordinary. And the labor, the changes to labor laws 100 years ago were because of these street level revolts. And those revolts worked because the labor movement started to use women. Women were a, are a crucial component in, in the in sort of underdog fights. They have advantages uh, that men don't have and vice versa. And, uh, you know, as one, you know, among other things is that the authorities are, are um, hesitant to use mass violence against women. Um, women massed in the street, uh, it, 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 it's very, very unlikely that the cops will, will shoot, at, shoot at them as re readily as they'll shoot at a mob of men. And one cop, I'll end with this, but it's a wonderful quote. Um, one police captain said in frustration in 1912 in Lawrence, Massachusetts, dealing with, you know, like a front line of all women on the street among the strikers. He said, you know, one, one good cop can handle 10 men, but it takes 10 cops to handle one woman. And um, that was the beginning of the end for the, uh, for the, for the authorities, the strikers won. Yeah, it was, I mean, there's so many powerful stories there, and I want to touch on a couple of them in a, in a minute. But I think what I would love to do, one of the most profound things in the entire book, I think, is the Gini coefficient. Reason being, it's such a great way of understanding, you know, autonomy versus you know, monopoly, I guess, would be the other, the other side of it. Um, and, you know, where our cultures, our firefighter union, whatever it is that you're holding against that scale kind of measures up. So, you know, what's, what's the origin of that? And can you explain kind of what kind of uh, society would fall on, on what range in that? Yeah, so the Gini coefficient refers to, G-I-N-I, -I, refers to a, an Italian economist about 100 years ago who figured out a very complicated calculation to describe the, the difference in income uh, within a society, the income gap, gap within a society. Uh, now, if you sort of rewind human, human history, uh, you don't have to go too far back to find a situation where all of humanity is basically existing in small groups of hunter-gatherers, um, you know, 30, 40,000 years ago. Um, uh, groups of, you know, around 50 humans, typically, typical human size of a human group, uh, survival group. Um, we're existing in the natural world and all completely interdependent on each other for, for survival. And in that kind of situation, like with the Apache, there's very little sort of quote class division, very little abusive leadership because you can't accumulate wealth in a mobile, mobile society. Uh, and so the, there, there is a, the, the Gini coefficient is very low, meaning the, the, the gap between, uh, poor and wealthy is very, very small. The income spread is very small. Once you introduce agriculture around 10,000 years ago and the establishment of cities and social classes and professional armies and the accumulation of grain and then the accumulation of, 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 of wealth, of coinage, uh, once you do that, there's a potential for the income gap to spread. And so 
what Jeannie figured out is that you can reduce this to a number and you can describe human societies in terms of where they fall on the spectrum between zero, which represents complete equality, economic equality, and 1.0, which represents complete monopoly by one person in a society. And, uh, you know, it's rather shocking. Like the, the hunter-gatherers are typically about 0.25. So they're much closer to equality than monopoly. Um, America right now is around 0.4. Around the le- it's around the same level as the Roman Empire. Um, medieval Europe with the kings and nobility and the, the uh, you know, a huge amassing of wealth at the very top of the social pyramid, they had a Gini coefficient, an astronomical Gini coefficient of, of almost 0.8. Uh, often dictatorships are that way. Very poor countries, you know, ruled by a ruling elite, uh, like Saddam Hussein, that kind of person. Um, a very, very high Gini coefficients, uh, very unfair society. So, you know, I, you know, I grew up in a very liberal environment and my, I just assumed like the more equal the society, the more stable it is and therefore the more effective it is and the, you know, like unequal societies will collapse because they're unfair and blah, blah, blah. You know, not true. Uh, the, 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 the dominant world society is the Han Dynasty, the Roman Empire, the Ottomans, the British Empire, the American Empire, you know, et cetera, et cetera. The dominant, the societies that, that have dominated world history, world politics, the world economy, have all had a, a, a moderately high Gini coefficient. Um, contrary to my sort of like programmed liberal, liberal beliefs, uh, which obviously are wrong an awful lot of the time, uh, contrary to those, a, a low Gini coefficient arguably is a, to, is fairer to people in that society, um, but it's not correlated with being a global power. A higher Gini coefficient is not too high, but fairly high. And uh, there's a kind of sweet spot of economic injustice where people are relatively okay but there's an accumulation of capital at the top that allows for a sort of strategic decision to be made about building armies and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And that seems to be where dominant societies come out of. Yeah. Well, what struck me from that is an observation I've made just as, as, a, as a human being, as an American citizen, is over here, especially even more so than the UK, there's this adoration of the concept of monopoly. And you even see it, you know, you, you'll see the two electronic stores, like one will build one right next to the other. And the idea is to put that one out of business and, you know, be able to sell all the electronics or, you know, agriculture instead of lots of small farms. Now we've got these mega farms and this from a, from a health, a mental and physical health standpoint, I think there's a lot of that has become very toxic to our society. And I think that, you know, whether it's uh, uh, the chronic disease management through pharmaceuticals, whether it's the poisoning of our food, whatever it is, you know, we have, you know, 70% obese and overweight in our population now. So that that kind of um, hero worship of the monopoly philosophy, I think, is is one of the things I find very damaging. And, and yet, like you said, we're not talking about everyone having exactly the same amount of money in their pocket. Of course, there's a stratification based on leadership and you know and that kind of thing but i i feel like that monopoly driven business model has been very very damaging to the actual health and environment of our our culture here yeah and you know it gets so complicated and it runs contrary to the 
sort of ideology and the rhetoric of both political extremes. I mean, it totally contradicts both liberal and conservative um, uh, mindsets, which is, you know, capitalism, uh, you know, which among the left is sort of an evil word, but frankly, it's associated with an awful lot of good things. Um, innovation and technology, I'd be dead without, I mean, the medical knowledge and instruments that saved my life could only arise in a capitalist society. Um, and, you know, as we, as we know it, uh, the, um, I mean, one of the problems with dictatorship is that, uh, is that that kind of economic and technological creativity sort of languishes. Um, the enlightenment, you know, one of the reasons that Europe pulled ahead of the, um, the Ottoman empire, uh, is that it stopped being a, it stopped being a society that was in, entirely dominated by religious thinking. Um, the Enlightenment thinking took hold, which was data-based, you know, things could be measured, ideas could be tested empirically, scientific innovation came out of that. And so, you know, pretty quickly you have these technological innovations happening that are um, partly a product of the sort of supremely rational mindset that um, empowers capitalism, right? I mean, capitalism does very, very well with an utterly rational data-based analysis. And um, the um, uh, the Ottoman Empire, um, the whole Muslim world was sort of like, it had once been a source of enormous scientific breakthroughs, um, but it, it, it became sort of bogged down in the sort of religious, the sort of religious framework in its understanding of the natural world. And the West pulled ahead because of its sort of like ra like non-religious rationalist approach, and so and that goes hand in glove with with capitalism. And you know, as as Yuval Harari pointed out in his amazing book *Sapiens*, you know, once you have the the lending of money, you need laws to protect the lender. You need laws to protect the recovery of that money. And once you have laws protecting money, you need laws to protect people because it is no sense protecting a loan legally if the loan the, the person who loans the money could just be killed so you don't have to repay the loan so so you know human rights law is closely associated with the rise of capitalism in northern europe in the 1500s um so so it's all very very complicated and uh you know what you know what i would say is that the huge amount of benefit from capitalism but also it's produced this modern mass society where corporations are not immediately accountable to, to the people, because the society is just too big. And in a small scale society, as an individual, in a hunter gatherer society, if you, you know, poisoned the water supply of your little group in the Kalahari desert, you would be killed, right? Are you kidding? You poisoned the water supply, our water supply, and now we're all going to die of thirst because you dumped uranium into the water supply because you wanted to make a little more money. Are you freaking kidding? Like, that justice is meted out very, very quickly in small scale societies when one person out of personal, uh, because they're, they're, they're selfish, does something that jeopardizes the rest of the group, right? And uh, so, you know, one of the things we have to figure out in our society is how do you make, how do you retain the enormous benefits of capitalism while making these corporate enterprises, which are very powerful engines of innovation and progress, while making them accountable for the damage that they can do by maximizing their um, 
their ability to make a profit. Like, how do you, I mean, that's where government relationship, uh, where government regulation comes in. Uh, but then once you make government and, you know, a, supposedly a source of evil, suddenly then there's no regulations and the regulations are a form of oppression. And then you get this absolutely silly argument going on about how to run a, how to run a society. Um, uh, you know, we owe, we owe, we owe our allegiance to the group and, and the group has to make the protection of human life of our lives. It's foremost, it's foremost goal. Absolutely. Well, that, that, transitions very well to another area I want to talk about, which was people rising up, whether it's the the example you gave in Ireland, whether it's the 1912 mill strike, but, you know, the fire service, law enforcement, a lot of us are members of unions. And I think it's important to hear a couple of the stories of, of, of the people rising up when there, when there is injustice, because, you know, I think fast forward to now, I want to get to leadership in a minute. Sometimes that message has been skewed a little bit. It's, it's starting to mirror the politics for which we stood up against in the first place. So, you know, what are some of the examples in the book that you use about people banding together and rising up against injustice? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think this is true. Um, across the political spectrum. Um, people resort to violence when they feel that other means of change, social change have been blocked to them. Uh, and so, I mean, there's been a lot of conversation about Antifa, whatever that is, I'm not even sure what that is, but certainly Black Lives Matter is a sort of tangible, uh, has a tangible objective reality. And I think I'm not advocate, I mean, I'm not a spokesman for anybody. So I'm just trying to, like under, analyze and understand the situation. The enormous violence that flared up last summer in this country around the killing of young black males and occasionally, occasionally females. Um, I think that that violence was a product of the African-American community feeling that change, they've strived for change social, through social avenues, cultural avenues, legal avenues, political avenues, and it failed to come. The crimes or the, the the tragedies continue to happen, and when um, and when people feel that there is no legitimate course for so necessary social change, they will resort to violence. And I think that's that's what happened. Um, that's what happened during the mill strikes. I mean, there were these initiative after initiative to change the laws. I mean, the 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 the, the wages were so low, the living conditions were so horrible. Um, you know, the 14 hour days, eight days a week, you know, like just horrendous. And but the, so, the living conditions were so horrible in the, in the ghettos that the, 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 the factory workers lived in um, that the infant mortality was, was one in five. I mean, imagine in these communities. And, um, and so eventually they just said, you know what, we're not going to work sorry, we are not going to work because you will not pay us fairly. And we, we live miserable lives without any hope of, of advancing ourselves or bettering our conditions or even hope for our children living better conditions. I mean, there were children working in the factories too, right? So um, a person a day was killed in these factories, right? In one factory, the typical mortality rate was one person a day from an accident. Um, unthinkable in a democracy. And and they rose up. And one thing, you know, if you if you have a strike and other and, and scabs are willing to replace you on the factory floor, 
your strike's not going to work. So one thing that happens with strikes is there's a sort of armed confrontation because the strikers want to keep the scabs from entering the factory and the cops are there to make sure the scabs can get in to keep the machinery humming. And then all of a sudden you have a big, huge street fight. So um, that that's a very, very short rough description of the labor movement in the in this country. You know, of course, every solution can be misused and labor unions, all kinds of unions in this country can act, you know, very well and they can act very, very badly. And there's been some real abuse of the prerogatives of labor unions, in my opinion, in terms of, um, you know, having a fair and reasonable society. Uh, you know, I think the police union has been called out a number of times for sort of protecting cops that frankly didn't act that well. So, you know, whatever, it's all an ongoing conversation. I don't really have a dog in the fight, but, I, you know, as I, as a journalist, I try to, what I do try to do is sort of lay out what the issues are so that we can have a rational conversation about them. Yeah, well, and I'm, I appreciate everyone's input. You know, I mean, my, my guests vary from from the whole spectrum if we want to lay people out laterally. But, um, you know, it's an, it's an interesting thing because I see it from the lens of the responder themselves. So, of course, I mean, I've, I've said this very publicly, the George Floyd incident was horrendous and there were multiple people in that scene that were responsible for that. Awful. We also know that there, in, in certainly in fire firsthand, I'm sure in, in law enforcement as well, that our do, unions do protect people, whether they've done some harm to others or are just horrible employees. And yet one of my frustrations is we, we don't even have a work week standard in the fire service. And, you know, I bury my men and women constantly. And I know that part of it is because of the basic health and safety element of our jobs. So I'm disgusted personally, me, James Gearing, when I see self-serving in the unions, because I know the foundation, the philosophy of a union is a bunch of men and women banding together because they're not being treated fairly. And it's not a poor me, it's not a victim mentality. It's, hey, our, our people are dying, whether it's in the coal mines in the 1800s or whether it's in the fire service in 2021. And so if we're not addressing these basal human elements and you're seeing pictures of, of children being handed folded American flags, not because they died in a house fire, because they died of cancer or, you know, whatever else was killed them that was that was related to what we do. That to me is, is it angers me because the union should be an amazing thing. And there are some incredible unions out there within the fire service. But I see an abuse of that power the same as I see in politics. Right. I mean, every corporate structure, every every hierarchy can use power to very good ends or very poor ends. And I would say government is can do both. Uh, the military can do both. Private corporations can do both. And of course, unions can do both. I mean, it's like the idea. I mean, whatever. we're all human. And so you're like every large scale, powerful solution is going to produce good outcomes and bad outcomes. And ultimately, it comes down to um this sort of like this, this this sort of fork in the road that we all come to at some point of do I want to protect my interests or do I want to stand up for a high principle? Uh, and sometimes standing up for a high principle means giving up your self-interest, right? And um, I mean, I know this is a totally loaded thing and I, I don't, you know, there's no reason for us to have a political conversation unless you want to. But, you know, I would say that during the huge, incredibly toxic, like political factionalism that's been happening lately when the GOP leadership finally, but eventually they actually did step up and counter to their political interest. They said, they confirmed that, you know, the election of Joe Biden was free and fair. 
they were standing up for a principle of democracy and ignoring their own personal interests. And that to me, you know, it's like, had they not done that proceed right now, like that at the end of the day, that has to be done. Like those principles have to be followed, even if it means undermining your own power. And I certainly hope that the left would do the same thing. Uh, but they don't always. And, you know, that's, that's where you see the difference between, as I say in my book, between, um, leaders and opportunists like leader leaders will leaders will die for the cause they will sacrifice their personal ambitions or their even their lives for a cause they believe in be, democracy whatever it may be opportunists uh, will never do that and i think it's quite in it's quite clear if when you look at you know officers in a combat zone who's one and who's the other when you look at politicians union leaders whatever 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 any quadrant of our lives it's quite easy to tell the the, the real leaders who are willing to uh, pay the ultimate sacrifice for something they believe in, and the um, the opportunists who who will not suffer any risk or damage to them, their own interests. Absolutely, and it's something that we've seen. I mean, I, I've worked for some incredible fire departments under some incredible you know, leaders, and then I've had the, the the converse, you know, the 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 complete opposite. And, you know, what I've witnessed with my own eyes as well, and it's tying into to Tribe, your previous work, which, you know, by the way, is absolutely loved by so many people that listen to this because it resonates so deeply with us. A good leader creates a strong tribe. And two, two areas, two layers of that, that mental ill health that I've seen is obviously being removed from that tribe, which you talk about in detail in your book, and also organizational stress. Well, those are both tied into toxic leadership if you have a self-serving leader they tend to to be threatened by tribes and they tend to break them down in the fire service they'll move crews around or move them to different stations and because they don't want to for that crew to have autonomy obviously a good leader trains and trusts their people and 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 you know that that autonomy is is encouraged because there's trust there yeah and and you know no underdog movement will win without leadership that's willing to sacrifice itself, its own personal interests. Uh, Michael Connolly, who led the the uh, Irish, uh, the, the Easter Rising in Dublin in 1916, um, you know, he was the George, you know, General Petraeus of the Irish rebels or whatever, you know, whatever. He was the sort of ultimate commander. And he, you know, he would sort of wander out into the gunfire on the, on the street while everyone was taking cover because he had to get a better look at the terrain and see where the, you know, the sandbags should be put. And, you know, his aide was like, sir, sir, please take cover. Like, you're going to get shot. And indeed, he was shot. Uh, he was the ultimate commander, and he could have easily sent other people out. People who were less necessary to the movement uh, sent them out to, to risk their lives and survey the terrain. And he went out there himself because he really was a leader. He was not an opportunist. Um, there is a, you know, the, a, a, a movement like that had, cannot win against the British Empire if the its very leaders are hiding behind the people that they they are ordering around on the battlefield. It cannot win, right? And but there's also a a direct sort of metaphorical equivalent in politicians. And we all know the politicians that are willing to sort of like take a take a bullet for a principle that they believe in, a principle such as democracy, and even the ones who won't. And you know like Western societies are big and affluent and wealthy, and we can survive poor leadership or, or non-leadership, I should say. Um, but, the, you know, the Irish rebels in 1916 couldn't. They, it wouldn't have worked. It would not have worked with leadership that was protecting itself foremost. 
When you touched on, um, again, the mill strikes and, and how women were used in, in a different role, like you said, the, there's a certain mindset that it was okay to, to shoot male protesters, male combatants, whatever they were. But when you started putting women in, there's, there's an intrinsic thing inside most men that just wouldn't want to kill a woman. Um, I think what was very powerful from that is you look at a lot of the the responder professions. Luckily, you know, thank goodness, now luckily is the wrong word, but thank goodness we've evolved to the point where, you know, we have men and women in, in law enforcement, in corrections, in, in fire. Um, and I see through my own eyes, you know, that there there are applications where a male responder is needed at that moment. There are applications where a female responder. So you in in tribe talked about. And please again correct me if I'm wrong. I think it was the Iroquois where you said there was a there was a leader for wartime and a leader for peacetime. So with with that kind of concept in mind, you know, what is your observation of? male and female roles in some of what were traditionally male uh, professions? Yeah, so I mean, let me just jump back for a moment to just clarify something. You know, in our society, women are uh, statistically primarily at risk from domestic partners. Uh, so it's not that men are not willing to do harm to women. In, 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 privately, they are. Tragically, they are. And we all know those cases. What I was saying is that public violence in the street, mass public violence, you know, opening up the machine guns against a crowd of mothers, like, or grandmothers in the streets of Santiago, Chile, you know, like during the, uh, the during the um, dictatorship there, opening up the machine guns against a crowd of women in the street is just not done. I mean, sometimes it's done, but the authorities do it very reluctantly. And there are huge political consequences that just do not have an equivalent if you do the same thing to a crowd of men. So that was my that was my point about violence. So if you put women on the on the front lines of a street protest, it really gives these young well boys really that are you know there with the guns and the helmets you know uh, uh, trying to enforce quote rule you know rule of law. It really presents them with this awful choice. Like okay, you're going to have to start killing women who are your mother's age. Right. You're going to have to use your bayonets against, you know, like and they just won't do it. Right. They just refuse to do it. So or often refuse to do it. So putting women on the front line gives the authorities abusive authorities this like terrible question to answer. Like, are you really going to do this? Because the consequences will be enormous for you. And um, so I just wanted to make sure that was clear, clear, because you can uh, uh, sort of underdog movements can use women strategically in that capacity is extremely effective. Yeah, thank you. I, I didn't I didn't describe it very well, so thank you for clarifying. <laughs> yeah, no, no worries, because I know inevitably someone is going to say, oh, come on, women are being killed by their boyfriends all the time. It's totally true. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about public, public violence. And even, you know, it's just an interesting sidelight since we have a little time here. It's a long podcast. Um, you know, they, they they looked at this the mortality statistics from the Titanic, and when they found the 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 public preservation of female life is such a powerful force that men, you know, this is a very patriarchal era, right? This is the early 1900s. Uh, there were very very wealthy men on the Titanic, and men in the in the first class cabins died at a higher rate voluntarily. They were not getting they were not taking seats in the lifeboats. Um, at a higher rate than female crew and even women in steerage, like third-class cabins. In other words, 
wealth and gender did not um, privilege men when it came to getting into the lifeboats on the Titanic in a way that it privileged them in every other circumstance back in society. When it came to people dying, what everyone on that ship tried to do was preserve the women and was save the lives of the women and children and very, very wealthy men voluntarily died in order to do that. So there's a huge, huge social pressure to, um, you know, men biologically are very replaceable, right? Reproductively speaking, are very replaceable, women are not. And so it's, it's sort, of, sort of makes sense. Um, now, you know, your question about, uh, about gender in, in um, first responder services, I mean, obviously, I mean, there are some sort of like biological differences between men and women that play out in terms of sort of raw physical strength and agility and things like that. Um, I know the test for being a fireman. I mean, you know better than me, but it's, you know, it says something to do with climbing 10 flights of stairs with 100 pounds of gear and then carrying a 180-pound person down those 10 flights of stairs. You know, I mean, I couldn't do it, you know, among other reasons. That's why I'm not a fireman. But so you have to be able to pass those tests. And there's going to be some deviation between the proportion of women that can pass those tests and the proportion of men. You're going to see some skewing in the in the demographics in those professions. But, you know, basically, particularly with some automate, automatization, um, men and women can do pretty much all the same things now. And um, and as you say, it brings, you know, it brings the assets of our the particular uh, um, sort of traits and qualities of each sex, it, you know, brings those assets to every situation. There are some situations where you need to, you need to, to threaten force and that de-escalates. There are some situations where that's catastrophic. You need something more of a, um, a, a, a relational approach a negotiative approach. Uh, I know this sounds sort of like very stereotypical gender thinking, but there's a lot of data behind women being better at that. Uh, way of interacting, you know, so obviously, like, we all sort of know how that works. Beautiful. Well, thank you for that, because I think it's, it's an important, you know, perspective to hear. We we were traditionally, you know, a male profession at the fire service, you know, thankfully, we, we became more progressive as time went on. And I see it with my own eyes, you know, there are times where and it might not even be a different sex, it might be different in personality. But there are definitely scenes where you know, a, a male might be the right fit, a certain male, and there's scenes where a female might. And even I had a friend of mine, Casey, who's a, a police officer here, and she said the same thing. You know, there's, there's there's times where they go on a sexual abuse case and it's a female. A male just may be the wrong person for that for that incident, you know. So getting away from that, you know, women have no place in profession X mentality that I've heard certainly earlier in my career. Two, just a more progressive understanding of, of the assets of having an a spectrum of personalities and and both genders so that we can as you said have a have a full toolbox to address whatever incident we respond to yeah yeah absolutely i mean every every human society and this is really worth remembering uh, every human society is split almost exactly 50 50 by gender and it's split almost exactly 50 50 by political belief and I, I don't mean in terms of modern american politics um but in sort of a basic, a basic conservative or liberal outlook, um, those outlooks are 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 are, her- are inherited, right? There's a genetic basis for our political beliefs, whether you're sort of basically a cons- have a conservative outlook or a liberal outlook. And in every society, the population is divided almost exactly 50-50 in terms of basic conservatism and liberalism. 
So obviously, since we're the product of evolution, societies seem to work best when there's a, a equal split between the genders and a sort of dynamic tension between the genders in terms of how to solve the basic problems of life and some kind of gender division of labor, a human universal. But also that societies work quite well when there's a, a dynamic tension between conservative liberals and conservatives, as long as they have a good faith a good faith willingness to engage in negotiation and compromise to, to devise the solutions that they ultimately choose. Beautiful. Well, I got one more question for you and then transition to some closing questions so I can let you go. But it's been quite a tumultuous, you know, few years. Obviously, we had the pandemic. We had, you know, a lot of the, the tensions, whether it was, you know, towards the police, whether it was... Um, you know, different uh, minorities that seem to have been targeted. And I think personally, I think this is an overall uh, propagation of hate in general more recently. Um, I don't think that's a large percentage of the population. I just think, sadly, fuel was thrown on the fire of the minority that, you know, enjoyed hate, whatever color creed they were from. If you were king for a day, what would you do? This is this is an amazing country, but I've I've brought people on from all over the world that I think do things better, whether it's Portugal's drug policy or Finland's education or Norway's prison systems. What could we do to to push the needle in um, improving the health, the 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 happiness, and the overall safety of this country, and and be even better than we are now? Oh my God. Health, happiness, and safety. Uh, let's see. Well, we have very high levels of safety in this society compared to the developing world. Um, the um, sort of modular lives that we live that are not really that connected to, um, I mean, every kid has their own bedroom. Every family has its own house. And, you know, every neighborhood is sort of isolated from its other neighborhood. You know, like there's a huge amount of isolation in this society and that we're social primates. That's not how we evolve, right? So so the 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 outcomes in terms of mental health are very poor. There's a very high rates of suicide and depression in affluent Western societies. And ironically, in poorer developing nations, the the depression rates and the suicide rates are a lot lower. Uh, and I you know I my theory is that it's because that poverty, although it comes with huge stresses, um, like with a natural disaster, forces people to collaborate collaborate more. They're sometimes literally all drawing their water out of the same well. And that collaboration, even in a poor or um, jeopardized in, environment, feels so good in human terms that it buffers people from things like depression and, and suicidal ideation. So, so I, you know, like how would we raise the level of human happiness in our society? I, you have to make it more human. Right. You have to be more socially connected and in really organic sort of like neighborhood ways. Get off your damn phone. Like I have a flip phone, you know, that the, the ability of a smartphone to just consume someone's attention to the detriment of their social relations. It's just horrifying. Right. I mean, something like 50 percent of teenage girls are are anxious. Imagine half something like that or a third. Like that's appalling. Uh, the suicide rate skyrocketing in young people. I mean, you know, clearly we're sort of off track. So what characterizes our society right now? It's sort of physical ease. It's we're enormously distracted with our phones and we're not 
communicating as human beings uh, in very effective ways. So, um, you know, and ultimately, I think that political instability at the top of this country, I mean, at the top, I mean, the top of the, the sort of like uh, organizational hierarchy, um, I think that's very, very unsettling to people. And I think, you know, both political parties are capable of just uttering bald-faced lies to service their political interests, both, both the left and the right, will just lie to your face if it thinks it advantages them politically, and those lies are destroying the democracy in this country. A democracy, I mean, as I wrote an article about the rise of fascism in Spain, my father grew up in Spain when Franco came in and they fled. As I say in this article, it was, it's in Time Magazine right now, it's an interesting piece, um, that democracy, will always survive the truth, but it cannot survive lies. And the two political parties really have to start calling out these lies and being honest with the public, um, or we're gonna lose this. And I think the, the, the anxiety that comes from watching our political leadership lie to us and be combative with each other, I think the anxiety that comes from that is like seriously a mental health issue for this entire country. Yeah, no, I I agree a hundred percent. I really do, and it goes back again to to the the type of leadership that we want. And something that I've said a lot recently is, it's not left or right to me. It's it's the process that gets these people to these positions. We all know some incredible leaders, some you know some um, servant leaders, you know that that would be amazing in these positions, and they never get the ability to get up there. So, you know, I think tying in all the things we talked about whether it's leadership whether it's you know the people uniting that's what we need we're being divided um and you know it's, it's very very evident that that's happening whether it's over covid whether it's over you know the, the the law enforcement or skin color or whatever it is and and that's not what i see when i step outside my front door i see like where i live a multicultural community that all walks their dogs together their kids play in the parks together that's that's america so, you know, we need people that are going to bind us together. And if it's not anyone in that, that particular building, then we need to stop fighting each other and start uniting and pushing for change. Yeah, I mean, that's to me, that's what makes this country beautiful. My, my, my dad was a refugee from two wars and he came to this country and he served it honorably and well. Um, and, I, and I love this country and I lived in a, mic, a mixed race, mixed income neighborhood. And the deli down, I live in New York City, the Lower East Side of New York City and the, the, the deli down the street. The corner deli down the street is run by Yemenis, right? And my my daughter, my eldest daughter, happens to have a an Arab Arabic name, um, just because it's a beautiful name, and we decided to to call her that. And the guy in the deli, and every you know, whenever we go in, he's he's so thrilled that this like American couple has a daughter with an Arabic name. Every time we go in, he like gives her a you know, like a you know, candy or a present or a banana or whatever he's laying around. It's the sweetest thing in the world. That is America. That is America at its best. And for that matter, that's humanity at its best. And if we have that kind of interaction foremost in our hearts, like we're going to be okay. Beautiful. Well, that's a perfect place to kind of wrap it up. Do you have time for a few closing questions? Yeah, go for it. Beautiful. All right. Well, then it's been interesting because obviously there's a lot's happened since our last conversation. So I wonder if any of your your choices will be, you know, will be from a different lens now. The first one I always ask, is there a book that you love to recommend? So the last three years or so, um, it can be related to our discussion today or something completely unrelated. Boy, um, I mean, I'm, I'm there's an amazing book about the Comanche called Empire of the Summer Moon. 
Uh, it's 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 just one of the best. I mean, it's one of the best pieces of like nonfiction journalism, you know, I think I've ever read. Um, there's a very profound um, sort of philosophical, short philosophical book uh, called Radical Hope. It's about, it was about the, um, the Crow Indians and how they confronted the advancing power of white civilization and went from being a warrior society to learning how to farm and read. And this one Indian leader named Plenty Coup realized that the ult- in this new era, when actual fighting would not defeat the enemy because they were they were beyond defeat, they were too powerful. The ultimate role of the warrior would be in this new era would be to learn how to farm and learn how to read, and that's how you would defeat white society, or protect protect the the, the crow people from white society. And it's a brilliant short philosophical book about going from a warrior stance to something. Um, something different and ultimately more effective. And of course it really spoke to me because I read this in my, you know, late forties as I was watching my, my physical body change into something I didn't recognize. Uh, and, uh, so those, those two books are like amazingly powerful books. Beautiful. Well, thank you for, for both those suggestions. I just, I meant to say this earlier and also thank you for being so kind of reading the first kind of drafts that I sent you of my book. And then, you know, obviously you read it recently, but you were, the genesis of this podcast definitely one of one of the people that I you know really spurred me to start this after listening to you and reading Tribe. But then you know you and um, uh, Josh um, were were the two people that really guided me through my book writing process as well. So I wanted to thank you quickly for that too. Uh, well, listen, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. It always is, and I wish you the best. And I hope we can keep talking every few years. Mm-hmm.